you'll stand with me, grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 through 15 today, but I'm going to be reading from John chapter 2 verse 12 through John chapter 3 verse 21. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling the pigeons, Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you do? Uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 19 Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when they were in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Most heavenly, glorious, and awesome God, creator of heaven and earth, recreator of our hearts that love you. Father, we willingly submit our lives to you, completely understanding that we need you more than life itself. Lord, reveal yourself to us today. Illuminate your word to our hearts that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might glory in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is not a story. It's an account of fact. Nicodemus was a real person who was a Pharisee. In our day and age, when you hear Pharisee, We've attached bad connotations to that office for good reason. But in the first century, Pharisees were the professors of religion. They were the university presidents. They were the R.C. Sproles of their day. This Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee, but also part of the ruling class called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin acted as a legislative and judicial governments for the Jewish nation. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee and part of the Sanhedrin, Jesus tells us that he was a teacher of Israel. Not a teacher, but the teacher. Now the Pharisees had a bad understanding of the law and the nature of God. They taught that the law was doable. That entrance into the kingdom of God was assured to all who were of ethnic Israel. But we know that the law was given to us not as a means to make us godly, but as a schoolmaster, Galatians 3.24, to show us the absolute impossibility of keeping it. It was given us that we should understand the holiness of God and to contrast that holiness with the sinfulness of man. It was given us in order that we should understand that entrance into the kingdom of God is impossible for man. It's not something that we partner with God in doing. It is completely monogeristic and not synergistic. It is all of God and none of man. But this is not what Nicodemus taught. This is not how he viewed scripture. He held to a works-based righteousness. Because if you were a Jew, you were assured entrance into the kingdom by birth. And since keeping the law was not only possible, but expected, 
they held tight rein on the, on the day-to-day actions of all that were under their rule. So how did these men, and specifically Nicodemus, complete, completely get the meaning of Scripture wrong? How did they turn the truth of the absolute goodness of God in contrast to the absolute wretchedness of man into a 10-step program? Laying out the possibility for man to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. There are two parts to this answer. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Outside of the Spirit of God, man cannot understand God, can't comprehend Him, can't even hear what He is saying. The carnal man is born both deaf and blind. The second reason is that the religious leaders had willingly supplanted His truth. They had added to the Word of God, to the law of God, They had given him a hand in getting his message across to the people, in making it more understandable, easier for people to take, to hear, to accept. But surely, we would never willingly go along with such heresy, and in doing so, find ourselves opposed to Jesus. But if that were the case, then why are there so many who are willing to follow the teachers who have a new perspective on Paul, and teach that women can be elders and preachers. If that were the case, then why would we stand against Jesus and Scripture to condone practicing homosexuals as elders and pastors? Or, for that matter, approve of and even celebrate sinful actions that go directly against the Word of God and then call it gay marriage? If this were so, then why are we so willing to not stand against the slaughter of his image bearers, willingly willing to rationalize it as the woman's choice, or it's just the law. And finally, why do we call this section of Scripture the story of Nicodemus? It's not. But there are tons of sermons and lots of people within mainstream Southern Baptist churches who have used Nicodemus as an example of cowardice because he came to Jesus at night. There are many people who have grown up their entire lives within church who think that this this section of Scripture is a character lesson on how not to come to Christ. But don't be fooled. We are just like Nicodemus. We take the scriptures and even after regeneration try to build a 10-step program to a better life, to view it from a man-centered point of view. You want a better marriage? Follow this scriptural pattern and that'll happen. Want financial success? Follow this scriptural pattern for riches and they're sure to be yours. You want to be more godly? Well, here are the steps for that. You take them, and that too is sure to happen. Now, to be clear, humans do have responsibility over their actions. But when we try to turn God's Word into a 10-step program, we can be sure that we are no longer preaching the gospel of God or seeking 
the kingdom of God. Verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Our chapter breaks and verse numbers have been added to Scripture, and though they are helpful tools, they also can and have broken up accounts. They have fractured Scripture to the point that it's often taken to mean things that was never intended to. They may have made it easier to follow a daily Bible reading plan, but they have also instilled bad theology in our minds. The account of Nicodemus is a great example. When we start to read it, we do it as if it's a beginning of something, as a start of a new account, a new section. After all, it, it is chapter 3, verse 1. But we need to read it with the backdrop of verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2 in mind which tell us that Jesus didn't entrust himself to people because he knew what was in them. We need to read it with the cleansing of the temple in our minds and the turning water into wine at the wedding feast, with the many signs that Jesus did that caused so many to believe in his name. Our verses today begin with that word, now. The same word is used to begin two previous events in chapter 2. Verse 6, now. There were six stone water jars that, there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This was the first recorded miracle of Jesus in the book of John. And then verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Which is the first recorded report of people believing. The now in this verse is used to inform us that Nicodemus was part of the group of people listed in verse 23 that believed because of the now of verse 6. These accounts are connected and build upon each other. But before we go any further, let me answer that nagging question that so many pastors pose concerning why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. We know that the Passover was at hand, and because of that, there were multiplied thousands of visitors to Jerusalem, perhaps a million people. It wouldn't be hard to figure that any who had any political or religious importance would desire to see Nicodemus, since he was a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin, and the teacher of Israel, which would have added to his already busy schedule. Perhaps this is why Nicodemus came at night to Jesus. But whatever the reason, Nicodemus did not send for Jesus to come to him. He condescended to coming to Jesus. And as we read through these verses, we can determine that whatever the reason for coming at night, he knew that the darkness of the sky was noonday sunshine in comparison to the darkness within his own soul. He was the teacher of Israel. He was the man whom everyone looked to concerning entering into the kingdom of God. Who would a man like this go to for direction or clarification when he himself knew that he was falling short of the glory of God? Answer, 
he would go to a man who he knew was from God. The signs that Jesus did proved to Nicodemus that he was from God. He believed that he was from God, at least a teacher from God, and perhaps even the promised Messiah. But the reason that he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah was because there was a huge mountain of religious misunderstanding in his mind and his heart. He may have memorized scripture, but he didn't know it. He knew the scriptures of God, but he didn't know the God of the scriptures. Nicodemus may have condescended to coming to Jesus. He may have even acknowledged that he was from God. And he may even believed, but he didn't believe correctly about Jesus. Because of this, whatever faith he had, whatever he believed about Jesus, was all spurious. It was of no account. He may have been the, uh, the teacher of Israel, but he was about to be schooled. And class had just begun. Verse 3. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, the kingdom of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't even, I'm sorry, Nicodemus didn't even ask a question, at least not out loud. He didn't need to. Jesus knew the question that was deep within his soul. I, I keep the law because I do, I'm holy. But there's this nagging thing that won't go away. I know that I really don't keep the law. And I'm not holy. And that the blood of animals is not an equal payment for my sin. Since this is true, what must I do to see the kingdom of a God? The rich young ruler that came to Jesus asked a similar question in Luke 19, verses 16 through 22. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you notice that this guy was pretty confident in the fact that he was already part of the family of God? In that, he would inherit. Notice also his answer to Jesus when he told him to keep the commandments. Those? Well, I've kept those my entire life. Just like with Nicodemus, Jesus cuts through all the religious trappings and leads this guy straight to the impasse that is keeping him from entering eternal life his understanding of who Jesus was, and his understanding of who he is. What Jesus says to him after he claims that he has kept all the commandments proves that his heart was not for God, but for himself. Sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. You say you want eternal life, I am eternal life. The rich young ruler went away sad, 
And as he walked away, Jesus said that it was impossible for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples got what he said. They asked him, then who can be saved? And he responded, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Nicodemus would understand that what Jesus had just said was an analogy. Rabbis and teachers used analogies as teaching tools very often. And at the same time, the idiom that Jesus used, truly, truly, was given to let Nicodemus know that what Jesus was saying was gospel. Having the same authority as when the prophets used to come with the word of God and say, Thus says the Lord. The analogy that Jesus used and the answer that Jesus gave to the question of Nicodemus' heart, what must I do to attain the kingdom of God, was so shocking and so contrary to everything that he knew to be true that he could only counter with what he knew to be true. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus was a smart guy. He wasn't confused, and he wasn't playing dumb. He understood what Jesus meant by his answer. But his religion was a works-based, law-keeping, do-this-don't-do-that religion. That's why he said that the requirement for a person to be born again was ridiculous. Everyone knows that it's impossible to be born again. He knew that no one had ever been born twice. It just doesn't happen. So Jesus was either insane, completely wrong, or just wasn't explaining himself very well. Jesus goes on, verse 5. He answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We must keep in mind that this was a real conversation between two real people which really took place. Jesus expected that what he was saying to Nicodemus would be understandable and even comprehensible. What Nicodemus would have heard when Jesus made this statement was, Thus says God, unless one is born of water and spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. But what did Jesus mean by this statement? When we read this, when these read these verses and see born of spirit and the water, we can think that Jesus was meaning baptism and then regeneration. Some even held that this is what Jesus meant. The problem with this understanding is that it makes baptism a requirement for salvation, and that's wrong. And it wouldn't be comprehensible to Nicodemus. For these reasons, we have to dismiss this meaning. But there's a second line of thought as what this phrase means, that being born of water and the Spirit is talking about natural childbirth the water being the amniotic fluid that comes at childbearing, and that all man is born a spiritual being. We have to reject this understanding as well, because it doesn't explain what the second birth is. And everything in Nicodemus's world revolved around Scripture. He would have done the same thing that Christians have done, taken other Scriptures that speaks of water and spirit and applied it to this phrase. He wouldn't focus on the analogy but on the spiritual truth that was being spoken of. He would have, or at least should have, focused on what Scripture has to say about spirit and water. And Jesus was pointing him to Scripture. When he heard water and spirit, 
he would have automatically taken his mind to scriptures that related to water and spirit, such as Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, which says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19 and 20. I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. Then they will be my people, and I'll be their God. Did you notice all the eyes in those verses? How much does man do in any of that? How much does God do? I will sprinkle. I will cleanse. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. These verses clearly explain the analogy that Jesus was giving to him and showed that the new birth was all done solely through and by God. He goes on in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 6 is given to bolster the truth of verse 5. To once again use the scripture that Nicodemus had spent his life memorizing and pointing to the answer of, to his greatest need. Nicodemus should have known the concept that like begets like is as old as creation itself. Genesis 1.24 tells us, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Sin had entered man because of Adam. And since then, man could produce nothing but tainted, sinning, treasonous flesh. This is the human condition for all humans, including the chosen people of Israel and even the elect of God within it. Verse 7, Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The need for a God-given new birth should not have been a new concept for Nicodemus or for anyone that has studied Scripture. David surely understood this concept, understood that he could do nothing in keeping the law or making himself holy. Listen to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. <clears throat> so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered to your altar. These men could not have been known to, or could not have been expected to know how this was all going to come about. The reason for that is that the scripture that spoke of the coming Messiah was all prophetic. And as I've said many times, how you view eschatology and Christ walking among them was eschatology to them will affect everything about your life, including how you read scripture. They didn't know how to reconcile a suffering servant with an everlasting ruling and reigning king in the Messiah. They thought and even taught that there must be two messiahs that would come. One that would suffer and die, and the second that would be bring about the restoration of the nation Israel and the kingdom of God. They thought and taught that God's commands were his enablements. Same is true today. That he would never command humans to do something that they can't do in entering his kingdom or in being reconciled to him. They say that that would have been unfair, illogical, but they should have known that to enter into his kingdom, they had to be reconciled to God, and they could not reconcile themselves. Everything within each one of us and them demonstrates this truth. They should have believed the truth that was spoken of in Scripture, that the Lord would give his people a new heart and his spirit, even if they didn't know how this was going to happen. But what they had done was to take prophecy, the prophecy concerning the new birth, and allegorize it, to make human sense of it. How could God, how could God give a man a new heart? After all, there was no heart surgery in those days. And everyone knew that you can't get a new spirit. You're stuck with the one you're born with. The new heart and new spirit spoken of in Scripture were changed from being given by God into the effects of living piously, righteously, and keeping the law. Their eschatology had failed them, had prevented them from expecting God to fulfill his promises of a new heart and a new spirit. And Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus is destroying his eschatology his theory of God, his entire life work, all in a moment. And he doesn't apologize in doing so. In fact, 
He uses surgical precision to cut the very foundational ropes of this man's theology and everything in his life. Verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus how all this will come to pass. And he uses something that everyone has experience with to explain this new spiritual birth. The wind. We actually can't see the wind. We see the effects of the wind. Leaves rustle, grass bends, waves crash on the beach, buildings are toppled, and rain is driven. Nothing is immune to wind, and nothing remains unchanged by the wind. The same can be said concerning the second birth wrought by the Spirit. No man can conjure it up within himself, and no man can resist it either. Any person, all people, who is directed at is unilaterally changed. They have no say in the matter. And as a side note, just as with the effects of the wind are undeniable, the effects of the Spirit are the same. You can't be born of the Spirit and not be changed. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Can you hear the heartbreak in that question? It's as if for the first time in his life he's being confronted with the truth of himself. The emptiness that's been plaguing him for so long, for as long as he could remember, that he'd been been able to bury under busyness or possessions or power, maybe position or even relationships. But that emptiness has now been pushed to the forefront of his life and laid bare before his eyes. Nicodemus' world had just been destroyed. His understanding of Scripture and man's part in salvation was all falling like dominoes. Many of us here have had this similar encounter with the truth of Scripture, with the God of Scripture. We had an idea of what it meant to be godly had our little boxes to check towards holiness, and then one day we're confronted with the truth of the gospel and the reality of who we are, and our worlds fall apart. Thank God for these hard truths. This is the gospel. This is the reality of the gospel. God is holy. We are not. This gospel is offensive to both the carnal and the religious minds. Nicodemus at this point is wrecked. His world has been shattered. He's a mess, all because of Jesus. So what does Jesus do next? Apologize for hurting his feelings, for offending his worldview? Nope. He drives home the seriousness of the situation and pins Nicodemus like a bug to a mat in the next four verses. Verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? God has always expected any who are in His service or hold that they are His will revere Him and understand some basic things about Him. That's why after He killed Nadab and Abihu, Moses said to Abraham, This is what Yahweh has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all of the people, I will be glorified. 
he still has the same expectations. He expected that Nicodemus would understand the holiness of God and the total depravity of man. He had the law of God. But unfortunately, it was the traditions of men and the commentaries by men on the word of God that made him believe that he was entitled to the kingdom and that he could achieve holiness, that he could actually keep the law. Verse 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you don't accept our testimony. Here Jesus moves from the singular I to the plural we. Some have argued that he was mocking Nicodemus for his opening statement to Jesus and saying that we know that you're from God. But this isn't the case. Jesus, like with a fish on the hook, was reeling him in by the use of Scripture. The we that Jesus is referring to here are the prophets who he had used to write the Old Testament. They witnessed to the truth that Jesus was now telling Nicodemus, a truth that should have been plain, a truth that should have prepared the hearts of God's elect for his Messiah, a truth that validated the signs of Jesus that proved that he was the Messiah. Nicodemus was trying to fit Jesus and his gospel into the religious box that he had been constructed, that had been constructed through the Jewish religious system for him and by him. He was trying to figure out if this guy was the first or second Messiah, trying to fit what he was saying and what he was being told into his eschatology. And it just wasn't happening. It wasn't fitting. And for these reasons, he simply could not believe. Verse 12, Jesus said, If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What Jesus is saying that the new birth is earthly. No. But it does happen here in the earthly realm. What he was telling Nicodemus, this professor of religion, this leader of the nation, is that, the, that since he has gotten the most basic of things of the kingdom wrong, how could he ever expect to be able to understand the deeper things concerning the kingdom of God? Like I said, Nicodemus was part of that group of people spoken of in verse 23 of chapter 2 that believed because of the signs that Jesus had done. Signs such as turning the water into wine in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2. Those that had seen these earthly miracles believed in the one who is now using earthly things such as water and wind to explain the reality of the unseen, of the spiritual, the miraculous. The most miraculous thing was that the man who did these things was not just sent by God. He was God. Verse 13, Jesus says this, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This seems like an odd statement to make at this point, but it isn't. Just as the religious system had circumvented the laws with extra-biblical text, they had also bolstered their wrong understanding of Scripture with, <clears throat> with man-made traditions. The Jewish religious leaders in the days of Jesus liked to tell stories of, of the prophets who had ascended into heaven and received special insights into God's ways and plans and then came back, which is how they came up with these heretical understandings of law-keeping, 
even the entrance into the kingdom of God. Most of it was centered on, this, uh, on Moses, since he was the man that God used to give the law. We have a lot of the same thing going on today in our cultural Christianity. People who, through fresh revelation, come up with off-the-wall meanings of Scripture and contradict its true meaning to deceive, if possible, the very elect of God. It was the same with the stories coming out of the Jewish religious system. But Jesus makes it very clear that no human has ever taken a tourist trip into heaven and then returned. All of those that claim such things are liars and deceivers. This is what has set him apart from every other human and should have tipped off Nicodemus that he was in the presence of the Messiah. He was not an earthly man who had gone to heaven and then come back with, sail, with tales of signs of wonders. He was from heaven. It was his home. And as such, he was the source of all knowledge. And if this truth was not enough to destroy every concept of the Messiah that Nicodemus held, if this truth, that this man was from heaven, was God incarnate, wasn't enough to rock this man's world, Jesus continues on to reveal the purpose of the Messiah, how his ministry here on earth would end in seeming disaster. Verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must a son of man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Here, now, is the real focus on this section of Scripture. These verses are the ones that we should have always focused our attention on, that should have commanded our attention. And if there to, we were ever to be any, amazed at anything in this uh, section of Scripture, it should have been these two verses. Verse 14 has been one of the most troubling verses for theologians for the centuries. I'm sure that it was pretty hard for Nicodemus as well. Nicodemus knew that he was referring to himself when he said son of man in both verses 13 and 14. In 13, he's made himself equal with God. And now in verse 14, he's likening himself to a serpent, to a snake. And throughout the scriptures, the serpent or snake has always been equated with evil, beginning in the Garden of Eden. But even with this understanding, can you see just how micro-focused we can be in studying the Scripture? How wrong we can be when we don't use Christ as the lens with which we read Scripture? Was Jesus just justifying the snake, the serpent in the garden? Was he saying, or was he saying that he was evil? Or is there a possibility that just as with all things, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, explain this all. From Mount Or, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water. <clears throat> and we loathe this loathsome, this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, snakes, among them, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anybody, if a snake bit anybody, he would look at that bronze snake and live. The snakes were a judgment by God because of the sin of the people. The serpents were the penalty for the sin of the people of God. Because of the snakes, they repented and asked that he remove his judgment from among them. He didn't. God did not do as the people asked and remove the snakes that were among them, that were biting them, that were killing them. He could have. But he couldn't just overlook their transgression. He couldn't be holy and do that. So what he did was to give them a means for them to be saved from the just judgment for their sin against him. To look upon the representation of the judgment because of their sin. The salvation that was given them, the snake that was lifted up on the pole, was not man's idea to deal with the problem of the snakes that were killing them. This remedy made no logical sense. This remedy should never have worked. It wasn't natural. The remedy for this curse was supernatural. It was outside of man. The snakes were real. They were an earthly manifestation to deal with the spiritual treason that these people had committed against God. And the punishment fit the crime. We have to remember that bronze is the metal that is used to represent judgment in the Bible. So it may not make sense at first blush then, that the serpent on the pole that was lifted up was made of bronze. After all, wasn't this the cure for the judgment of God against these people? It isn't until we understand that the serpent lifted up on the pole is a shadow or an illusion of the reality of Christ being lifted up on the cross that the fact that it was made of bronze finally makes sense. When Christ was nailed to that tree, when he was lifted up on that cross, the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect Holy One, became sin. My sin. Your sin. Our sin. And all the fury and wrath of his Father that should have been poured out on each one of us for all eternity was hurled at him. God made a way for any who had been bitten by the serpents because of their sin against him. Made a way for them to be saved through faith in him. They didn't need to look at that serpent and then go say three Hail Marys, or pay penance, or go stand in a corner, or go do a work. Once bitten, they knew they were as good as dead. They had one chance have faith in the remedy that God had provided. Look 
to the serpent and be saved. The plan that God created was not only effective in saving, but it was also sufficient in saving all that looked with faith upon his means of salvation. No matter how bad it looked, no matter how many times they had been bitten, and no matter their station in life, all that looked in faith were saved. The serpent that was lifted up on the pole was a shadow or an illusion. It temporarily cured people of a mortal affliction brought on by their sin against God. Jesus is the reality of this shadow. The true cure for the eternal death that is the just punishment for the treason of man against God. And just as the serpent on the pole was sufficient and efficient to save all that looked on it in faith, the same is true concerning salvation through faith in Christ. Just like the serpent on the pole, Jesus had to be lifted up. This is truth. This end of the life of the Messiah made no sense to the carnal mind. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to us, those being saved, it is the salvation of God. Man would never have come up with the salvation plan of the cross. He couldn't have because he doesn't have the ability to. The wages of sin is death, and this is a debt that no mere mortal can ever pay for himself or anyone else. It's an insurmountable, unrelenting, and unending debt that must be paid. It was only through the sinless, spotless Lamb of God that not only was a sin debt paid, but that the curse of death was defeated. He had to be lifted up. And we can see this lifting up in another light as well. Because of his love for and obedience to the Father, the Son of Man must be lifted up. That is to say, he must be elevated, exalted, and worshipped as God. A.W. Pink in his exposition on the book of John said, Man became a lost sinner by a look. For the first thing recorded in, of Eve in connection with the fall of our first parents is that the woman saw the tree was good for food. Genesis 3.6 In like manner, the lost sinner is saved by a look. The Christian life begins by looking. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 45.22 The Christian life continues by looking. Let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 And at the end of the Christian life, we're still to be looking for Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven. For whence we, want, we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 From the first to the last, the one thing is required is looking to God's Son. Scripture has one central theme, and it is Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. All that look to Him in belief will be saved. 
not believe that he is a God, not believe that he's a man from God, not believe that he was sent as a prophet by God, believe that he is the incarnate God, that he is the Savior, the Messiah. All men need saving because they can't do it themselves. They can't even partner with God in this task. They need a savior. This message was offensive to Nicodemus. The message of the cross is offensive to all men. We aren't told how this conversation ended. That doesn't matter. Since we're not supposed to read this section of scripture and be amazed that Nicodemus didn't get it. Or be amazed at Nicodemus at all. All is learning, all his knowledge, his wealth, his position, titles, aren't supposed to be our focus. They are merely part of the details given to us as the backdrop to the true story. The true story of the most amazing rescue mission ever undertaken in all of history. The true story of the greatest romance of all the centuries. The true story of the most valiant hero the universe has ever known. In short, the true story of the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Let us be amazed at the love of God and that he would condescend to coming to earth as a man. Let us be amazed at the love of God and that he would condescend to the ridicule of his image-bearing creation. Let us be amazed at the love of God that in his patience he condescended to offend men with his gospel message in order that those that he had elected would look to him in faith and be born again, to be saved, to enter into the kingdom of God. Let us be amazed at the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believed in him would not perish, but would be saved. Let's pray.